This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. It's a mean age. But it is going to be a beautiful future as long as we don't get up. I'm Brian McWilliams, and this is Mean Age Daydream, where I bring you unfiltered comedy, criticism, philosophy, and politics with a Mean Age Daydream. Welcome to Mean Age Daydream as we stand on our island of uh, rightitude amidst the collapsing financial system. <laughs> I have a wonderful guest here today to join me, the one and the only Clint Russell from Liberty Lockdown. Hey, Clint. What's up, Brian? How you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. I don't have any money in uh, Silicon Valley Bank, nor Signature Bank, nor uh, I think First Republic. Is that the other one that's on the chopping block that they're looking to yeah. take it over? <laughs> well, there's there's about eight that look uh, perilous, but I, I think that they're all regional banks. So if you're on one of the big boys, even though it sucks, uh, you're probably safe. Yeah, exactly. It's that's one of those interesting things. You know, it's a perfect time to have you on. You're going to be a popular guy, I will say, more popular than usual right now, <laughs> considering oh, your it's your crazy. background. Yeah. Well, tell you know what. Before we get into it deep, I know a lot of people know who you are uh, and know your background. But if for those of the you know my audience that don't, can you give a quick uh, synopsis of you know your expertise in the financial r- arena? I think would be helpful. Sure. Uh, second gen libertarian, and I. Came out of college into the 0809, you know, shit show. Um, I started working for my family's mortgage company, uh, got into a fight with my dad about four years in and quit, started my own mortgage company to compete with him. Uh, and and I ran that for about a decade and was very successful. Uh, you know, by 2020, I was already, you know, very nervous about the the state of the economy. Then the lockdowns happen, happened, the printing happens, the uncertainty happens. And as a fiduciary for my investors, I just opted to shut down my company. And a month later, I started Liberty Lockdown, started to, you know, try and speak out a bit about, uh, you know, the insanity of lockdowns. But because of my, you know, my finance background and, and Austrian economics background, I, I really, uh, you know, I kind of filled a, a dual purpose niche. And, and that's now, you know, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm just trying to educate people as to why all of this financial malfeasance exists and, and why it doesn't need to be this way. Amen, man. And doing the Lord's work over there. I, um, you know, I was looking at this with, obviously it happened so fast and I'm looking at all of this and we probably will agree on this format and, uh, and what caused this entire collapse to begin with. But People are probably at home. They they should know more or less what's going on. It, to encapsulate this, we're in the midst of this banking collapse, or I'd say maybe not a collapse, because as you said, the big banks are probably going to be okay, but a lot of regional banks are in trouble, and all stemming from mismanaged bond portfolios of the big banks. I would say also a mismanagement of, I guess, a, a clientele that when you need to make a payroll, especially in one specific industry that you know tends to be very cash burn heavy, which is tech and venture capitalism. You're going to be be siloed in a way that's going to really put pressure on you. And then on top of that, just human nature of when things get rough, people panic. And that has led to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. But I was listening to a little, you did like a little 15 minute show on SVB or SV, yeah, SVB. And 
if you wouldn't mind, you know, with your expertise, kind of run us through what you what you see going wrong. And then we could talk a little bit, I think, about the foundations of how we got here, what the government's done to cause this and and this cyclical operation that central banking gets us into. Sure. Do you want to talk about SBF or or uh, just the broader picture? I think, well, let's talk about the specifics of this bank first. Or S- SVB, um, my mistake. SVB, yeah, SVB. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about the specifics of this one, and then we can get into a little bit of conversation about the broader nature of you know zero interest rates, free money, and all that good stuff. Right. All right. So what they did was, uh, because they were you know in the tech sector, in Silicon Valley, they had a, a lot of uh, depositors that come from the tech world, as well as the health tech world, as well as the crypto world. So in 2021, as the the bull market is just completely out of hand in the crypto world, primarily because of the printing that happened in 2020. But anyways, setting that point aside, uh, they start to have a tremendous amount of cash infusions via their depositors, their customers. And what they're trying to do as, you know, the the risk manager idiot that she or he was, they're trying to to receive enough return on that that those holdings um, without taking a lot of risk. I mean, that's your job, right? You're supposed to try and make as much money as possible without taking an outsized risk and jeopardizing the solvency of your company, which is exactly what he, she did. So <laughs> they have $80 billion that they're trying to uh, stash somewhere that it needs to be liquid, but it also needs to make a return. And they have an option at the time. They have a choice. I shouldn't say option because that misleads people. They had they had a choice as to what they were going to do with that cash. They can put it with a Federal Reserve Bank, which is still obviously their cash and it just sits there liquid. You can keep it in cash. You can keep it in your actual bank if you want, or you can put it into bonds of some type. And you could have put it into one-year treasuries at the time. I looked it up. It was about a 1% annualized return, or you could have put it into 10-year mortgage-backed securities, which was a 1.58% uh, annualized return, but on a 10-year duration. So they opted as insane as this sounds, they opted to go with the 10-year mortgage-backed security and they did not hedge. They did not take any hedges (laughs) if if there was to be a a Fed pivot and and an interest rate hiking cycle. Well, what do you know? As of February 2022, the Fed does pivot and they pivot as hard as they ever have in my lifetime. And they, you know, continue to to escalate interest rates all the way up until this, you know, today. And Instead of liquidating after the first pivot and the first uh, interest rate hike, which obviously on paper makes them uh, now take a loss on that $80 billion in 10-year MBS holdings, they don't. They don't liquidate it because they're pieces of shit and they <laughs> sit on it because they don't want to realize that loss and they wait until um, you know this week. And But this is where it gets really criminal. CEO, CTO, CFO, bunch of people at the highest levels of that bank sell millions of dollars worth of shares of their bank in mid-February. So these scumbags knew that they were insolvent probably early February. They sell it out and to, you know, basically abandon the Titanic. And then on Monday of this week, the fucking piece of shit CEO says, oh, everything's fine. We're good. So this dude's already cashed out three million bucks and he's telling all of his shareholders who he has a fiduciary duty to legally binding him to put their interest over his own. And he doesn't fraud prison forever. So, yeah. But you know, of course, we'll never see that. Yeah, the, the odds of the odds of these people being prosecuted is is zero and nil. I mean, it almost reminds me of well, it does distinctly remind me of all of these instances in the past. Like, have you ever read a book called The Creature from Jekyll Island or heard mm-hmm. of that book? Fantastic book. Kind of, it really goes through the history of central banking and. 
you're seeing this play out before our eyes. It is quite literally the exact thing. It's history repeating itself because every time we've had centralized banking in the United States, which the, you know, the founders explicitly were against, uh, or at least the majority of them were explicitly yeah, against. All the good ones kind of, were. <laughs> all the good ones, exactly. We're against this centralized banking for this exact reason. We're against uh, you know unsound currency that wasn't backed by specific gold. We're against printing of of paper money and you know and, and these slips which accounted for nothing, but. You saw that time and time again, major banks would fail. They'd do the exact same thing. They'd expand. They would fail. They would do bad investments. And then they'd be bailed out time and time again. But yet, every time, there was always this cadre of people who got the word in advance that knew to get out in advance of the, the general population and just let people bite shit, which is exactly the same thing that we're seeing happen here. You're now, exactly right. So let's, you know, so that's, that's the situation we're seeing right now. Now, I, there's two ways we could go and I'll let you choose which way you want. Do you want to talk about a little bit of the ESG option here? Because I know that's one of the things that you really get into a lot on your show as well. And how Silicon Valley Bank was so deeply invested and, and really touted their ESG, their LGBTQ plus, they had the, the risk management uh, woman was a, you know, uh, a non-binary. woman of color and a yeah, non-binary woman of color. It's like all the checkboxes. Yeah. So do you want to talk all, about all of that? the checkboxes except the ability to evaluate <laughs> risk. Like the one thing that matters in that fucking job, dude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, let's yeah, let's go down that road then. So let's talk a little bit about ESG and how these companies are abandoning their duty. And and they said something, I think they invested something like five billion dollars too into ESG, you know, maneuvers and manners and you yeah. know, supporting X Zero Y and Z. climate initiatives, yeah. Yeah, there you go. So let's talk a little bit about that, and then we'll circle back and talk about um, what led up to this from a governmental perspective, regulatory perspective, and, uh, and the Fed. Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, you covered it pretty well. I, I just would add that you know they many of their companies that they service are also you know woke ESG type. I mean, it's, it's Silicon Valley, so it's like exactly right. what you would expect all San Francisco based businesses to be about. So it's just a bunch of you know people that I despise and despise me. Um, that are you know behaving in stupid business ways because they don't believe in capitalism. They ultimately believe in cronyism paired with wokeness, which is like <laughs> my two least favorite things probably on earth. So you know, in in some ways, you know, I get people's you know culture war instincts to just say like fuck these people, let them all go bankrupt. Um, but the reality is like you will pay a price too. Like I don't think people understand yeah. that like if you allow bank runs to happen nationally. And, and you don't have intervention and you have bank runs everywhere and you have, you know, payroll that stops and you have sh food shortages and <laughs> labor shortages and all sorts of crazy shit that, that like, I don't think anyone's really prepared for. So unless you're prepared for that, then, you know, by all means, just scream in the fed and scream, no ballot. Like, that's fine. You know, I'm, I, I stand with you. I'm actually better financially insulated from this than pretty much anyone that I speak to on, you know, through my show. Uh, but people still like are mad at me because I, I won't just say like, no bailouts, fuck them. Let's, right. let's have the Great Depression now. It's like, hey, OK, but I don't think you guys are as ready as me. So like, are you sure? Are you sure that's what you want? Because <laughs> it's going to be right. painful as a <laughs> motherfucker. And also on top of that, you know, we're on the, you know, the precipice of World War Three, potentially with both China and Russia. And it's like what what happens when empires uh, enter, you know, kind of the, their last blowout phase of financial malfeasance, oftentimes big, big wars happen. Well, what's new? Well, now we have nukes in play. So like, do you really want to see a great a global Great Depression and World War Three? Because are you really ready for that? Because like, even though <laughs> I'm pretty ready, I'm not really ready for that either. So I don't know, man. It's just like it's rocking the hard place type shit. It's fucking it's terrible. Yeah. It was all on. A, it was all avoidable. 
and uh, and unfortunately, the vast majority of the people that are responsible probably won't pay a price. It's crazy. No, I'm sure they won't. And by the way, we're going to do a little bonus segment. Clint's going to tell us, uh, as he said, he is well insulated or better insulated than many of us out there. So we're going to talk a little about that in the bonus segment, which you guys can check out if you go to patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty or lionsofliberty.locals. And of course, Clint's got his own locals community too, which I will link to in the show notes. And we'll, Thanks, man. we'll make, uh, make sure to get a, all your plugs in for that at the end of the show. But okay, let me say something real quick too. Yeah. Uh, the, re- the reason that I, I say I'm better insulated is not to brag. It's to say, like there's a lot of people out there that are not ready. Okay. Yeah. Like they're just not ready. And they, they, they have this, this kind of autistic, you know, puritanical view of libertarianism where they're just like, this is the fucking Misesian thing to do here. So like, right. I, I'm like, look, you're right. <laughs> I'm not saying you're wrong, but I'm just saying like, dude, you're going to be unemployed and you're going to stand in line for fucking you know, like bread. Like it's going to be yeah. really, really bad if, if it all is just allowed to collapse under its own weight. And maybe that's the right thing to do. Certainly it's the right thing to do, uh, you know, in the long term, but short term, it's going to be really rough. So just, yeah. you know, think, think about what you're saying. That's all I'm saying. Well, like you said, we're without a doubt in the, in the rocket hard place scenario here, because the, what the Fed's done, and and so we'll, you know, we'll talk about the historical context. Of this. So when we talk about the Federal Reserve, we talk about going down, you know, interest rates, adjusting how the market operates, setting these, you know, interest rates which are absolutely insane, giving away essentially free money to these, you know, to banks, causing inflation. And of course, what happens when you get rid of fractional reserve banking, uh, you know, any limitations on it, which now you need less than one percent in your bank. Right. So. Free money, zero interest rates lent out. Then it's exponentially increased by banks lending it out to people on top of that. And so it's, you know, oh, and then derivatives on contracts. top of inflationary. Yeah. yeah. And then de- derivatives contracts. And then, uh, the, I mean, there's a whole bunch of other, you know, financial innovations and instruments that have been created over the past 20 years that allow them to lever, lever up on the back end even more so. So it's yeah. like, yeah, I, people don't understand how much leverage exists. It's, it's astronaut. It's like unimaginable, unthinkable, unprocessable for the human mind. It is fucking yep. quadrillions of dollars. That's what we're talking yep. about. A hundred percent. So we've got that situation in, in place, right? And on top of that now, so the Fed's choice, as you said, they, you know, we talk about the rock and the hard place. They're faced with this, this option because we have all of this money given out during the pandemic, trillions and trillions of dollars that we have an inflationary spiral, which they have to stop. So. Like you were saying earlier, they put in all of these measures as fast as possible to stem the inflation. Great. But at the same time now, you also have, as you said, you know, a potential World War III looming. But at the same time, we also have the potential of the dollar being ditched as the world currency. And that becomes especially prominent when you do have saber rattling with Russia and China at the same time, which is just going to make them glob together to form a, a union that's going to combat NATO and disincentivize them from using money. I think Russia's already pulled back from using dollars in, in their oil sales. Well, so yeah, they, they didn't have a choice. Their their, their yeah. cash was seized by the hundreds of billions uh, at the beginning of the Ukraine war. And and now it's being threatened that that, that money, instead of just being frozen, is actually going to be seized and given it to the to the Ukrainians to rebuild right. their nation. <laughs> um, and then on top of that, you had them kicked off of SWIFT, which forced yep. them to start using uh, electronic payment processing uh, system that China uh, operates off of. And then on top of that, you have China, who just brokered a peace between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Saudi Arabia, who had been the underpinning of the petrodollar system after we came off the gold standard in the 1970s, they had been selling their oil exclusively in U.S. dollars. They In December of 2022, they have already come out and threatened, saying, look, we are open to the idea of selling our oil in in uh, yuan, the Chinese mm-hmm. currency. So, like, all of the the dominoes are there, and like, our government is ushering the first domino as hard as it possibly can. And I'm just over here, like, 
what are you guys doing? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it is, it's so dangerous on so many levels. And, and I think that most people are not privy to the, the higher level concerns. Like a lot of people are just like, is my bank account going to be solvent? It's like, right. dude, this is so much bigger than that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about catastrophe on a, I mean, without a doubt, a worldwide scale, you're talking about entire financial systems collapsing, which is essentially what we're talking about here. And like I said, now the Fed, what do they do? They can either lower interest rates, right, to try to stem this banking collapse and try to give these people more money and, you know, and stabilize the system, or they go down and risk, you know, again, if, if you continue to inflate, though, you risk the people dropping the dollar. Now, I think that the option, they've said that what they're going to do is not a quote-unquote bailout, but I don't know if you saw what they are doing, which I thought was pretty ridiculous, which is that they're creating these bridge banks from the FDIC. They had, they are stepping in, and they announced a quote-unquote loan program, which is, I repeat, not a bailout, according to them. But what yes, it is, yes, yes. <laughs> it's called the Bank Term Funding Program, BTFP. And it offers loans up to one year in length to banks, savings associations, yada, 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 pledging U.S. Treasuries, debt, and mortgage-backed securities as Bingo. collateral, right? Banks will be able to borrow against their assets at par, a.k.a. face value, until they are solvent enough to pay these loans back. And, of course, these loans are, are interest-free. Can, I, can now, I break something down? Because it's really please. important. Oh, yeah, yeah, by all means. All right. So the reason that I, I wanted to interject is because it's very important that people understand the reason that they're doing this is not because of Silicon Valley Bank. It's because what they have done in this this hiking of interest rates over the past year so aggressively is that there are a ton of banks out there. I don't know. I, I don't have the figures because the regulators don't actually disclose this stuff, but I hope someone you know finds this, this information. I, I would imagine there are a lot of banks, a lot, that are sitting on either treasuries or uh, mortgage-backed securities that are terribly underwater. So mm -hmm. what this lending facility ultimately amounts to is I'll give you the full face value. That's what par means yep. of, of these debt instruments that you're holding as assets. But in reality are massive losses that are sitting on your yes, books unrealized. Exactly. That's you what just it is. Nailed it. That's exactly where I was going with this, man. It's so funny to me that they're saying, you know, we're going to be on par based on your assets. When you know these assets are completely overvalued, you know that these books are cooked and we know that yeah. they're, you know, the leverage these banks have is so low. And like you said, they are underwater. It's insane yeah. to cut, to, to not call it a bailout is absurd on its face. But again, they're doing this as a, you know, they're trying to have, have their cake needed too. That yep. is exactly right. Exactly right. So where do you think we go from here? I mean, if you were to guess, where do you think the, the U.S. is going to go? Do you think they are going to bring the interest rates down in addition to this move? Well, that, that's the whole problem. The, the rock and the hard place scenario is like if they pivot and, and Powell says, OK, I'm going to cool out, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to chill mm -hmm. and I'm going to drop I'm going to drop a quarter point as opposed to raising a quarter point or a half a point like he was planning to. Um, then the whole like inflationary spin, you know, starts to churn up again. Um, and, and risk is back on and people start to borrow and, and, uh, and lend more aggressively once again. And basically like now you have a backstop, uh, a perceived or real one that, that is essentially saying, you know, easy money days are back. And also we've now assured all depositors to an unlimited amount in any bank in America, which is what that declaration Sunday night amounts to mm -hmm. um i mean you just 
increase the moral hazard that exists within the, within the system and you allow for the bubbles to inflate further, which means that ultimately the price that you pay and the pain that you experience increases down the road. So like, I don't fucking know, man. <laughs> this is why yeah. I'm so nervous. Cause like, I just don't know, like no matter what they do, it's not going to be good for us necessarily. And, and either way they go, it can whipsaw and, and ultimately end in disaster and, and like a really severe disaster. So I don't know. I just I, like, I wish I could tell people, but this is why, I mean, we'll cover it later on, but why I think hedging your portfolio is the only way you can play this until you have, you know, real clarity as to how this plays out. It's just impossible to, to put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. And you know, what was interesting, and I don't know if you, you've caught this, but it's something I wanted to talk about when they talk about Signature Bank, right? Now, Signature Bank was in New York. The Fed sees that, or the FDIC IC took over this bank and Barney Frank, of course, you know, is famous for this Frank Dodd legislation, bank regulation, which would, and now, you know, by the way, just on a side tangent, they're also, there was something like 300 CEOs in Silicon Valley, which signed a letter demanding more regulation of the financial industries as if, it just, it drives me insane as if the regulation has ever done anything to stop them. And as if regulation isn't going to actually make the problems worse, in well, my opinion. As, as if, as if the banks aren't one of the most regulated, you know, right. heavily regulated industries in the world. In right. the fucking exactly. world, dude. Like, exactly. It's it's so preposterous, but yeah. And you talk about, you know, how also, you know, the big banks are safe because the big banks have the capital, they've got the backing, they've got the regulatory arm on, on their side. But also, if you get rid of the regulations, deregulate, and actually allow more small banks to pop up, those small banks are going to be insulated. They can make their own, you know, their own standards that how they operate might be to have a higher level of reserves in the bank that they assure their customers. You know, there's more options available with less regulation, but no. Yeah. No, that's we're, we're headed in the direction. And that's actually an important thing. I'm glad you brought that up. There's yep. because these mid-sized banks are the ones that are now insolvent because you have full guarantees of bailouts for JP Morgan Chase and mm -hmm. Bank of America and all these other big boys. Um, what this amounts to is, is further incentive for the big boys to acquire more of the mid-size and the small banks. And, and it limits competition. It decreases the options for the consumer. It ultimately uh, increases the amount of you know catastrophic systemic risk that exists within the system, and and that's why you know it's really a bad option to just say all of the mid-sized banks that have behaved in this fashion let them all go under because what it ultimately amounts to is they probably won't go away. They'll be sold at a massive discount to the biggest yep. banks on earth, and it's like this is why I don't like. Yeah, fine. I'm fine with it. But like, I think that what you ultimately get out of that is not just bigger and more problematic banks, fewer options, but you also end up with a situation where you have more systemic risk to you and your mm -hmm. family. And then you also end up with a, a better chance of the population, the, the average people demanding that they begin, you know, central bank digital currency or universal right. basic income or all these other like new, new deal type of things. Like, I really think that's what we're looking at is probably by the, you know, by the next presidency or during it for sure, there will be a real concerted effort for those, those types of financial vehicles. And as you know, as well as I do, uh, there's no escape once that happens. So no, <laughs> like, it's, that is a it is a uh, an end of all freedom all liberty moment in my opinion when you get to central bank or essentially back digital currencies but yep. this actually ties in with this what what uh Frank was saying Senator Frank in that he said that in his opinion 
and this is kind of odd. And I want to get your take on this. He thought that the FDIC stepped in so quickly with Signature Bank, which who would Signature Bank had said, and this might have been blowing smoke, just like the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank had said, look, here's our balance sheets. We actually think we're in a fairly stable position right now. And they still stepped in almost immediately and took them over. Now, Frank had said, I think this is because we had a lot of crypto involved in our, you know, I guess in their balance sheets, as far as uh, people that they were funding. And he said, this is an attack on crypto. They wanted to come in and make a statement about crypto. What's yeah. your take on that? Because I, I don't know. I looked at that and I went, I don't know if that's true. But at the same time, I mean, if you want to get, if you want to assault crypto, if you want to take it out to to push forward the, uh, the central, central back digital currencies, maybe, maybe yeah. we'll see more of that. I, talk, I talked to Dave about this last night because some viewer uh, asked this exact question. And mm-hmm. and it's fair to consider that if this is uh, an operation choke point type of deal where they're they're trying to you know cut their top competitors off at the pass by by undermining the banking institutions, which have dedicated themselves to serving this industry. Um, and I, you, you have know, to I, think Silicon Valley Bank, too, must have had. I mean, we talk about, you know, all these different startups, AI, crypto. I mean, it's got to be crypto on their balance sheet as well. Oh, I have to ma- think. Ma- yeah, undoubtedly. Or or at least their depositors were heavily right. in that arena. So for sure, it's a it's a shot across the bow at the crypto sphere. But there's also insolvency that exists because there was leveraged instruments that, it, that were being utilized to acquire cryptocurrency. And there's like real insolvency that exists in that market, too. So without looking at their books, I can't say for sure if it's true. I'll say this. You know, if Barney Frank is ste- stepping up and, and speaking out on behalf of cryptocurrency, that dude's fucking bought and paid for by Coin- Coinbase or, yeah. you know, some big crypto player like. Uh, but, you know, hey, that's the that's the way the game's played. If like if you have to buy a politician to try and defend the cryptocurrency market, then fine, you know, go go do it. Um, but I just, you know, I wouldn't view these people as your actual allies. They don't believe in anything that you do principally. It's just like, yeah. Yeah, my my, you know, I'm probably going to get my next election guaranteed because I I stepped up uh, on behalf of cryptocurrency. So it's uh man, I know I'm sounding really blackpilled, but <laughs> I'm just trying to tell people the truth about what I see in the world. No, I, I I'm with you there. You know, I, I try to I try to stay on the positive kick as well you know, mm-hmm. most of the time. But yeah, it's been this has definitely been a moment a moment in time which has shaken a little bit of my my faith in the things all working out for the best. I will yeah. say that. Well, I, um, let me let me also add, you know, if you don't have your cryptocurrency on any of these centralized exchanges, like you're you are hedged in a way that very few people in this country or in this world are. So like good on you, you know, golf mm-hmm. clap. But like it's it's not assured that you won't see a, a massive deflationary wave that really decreases your your dollar value of your crypto holdings over the next couple of years, too. So um, you know, you're better than most. You're you're in a better position than most, but like, don't uh, <laughs> don't don't relax. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly right, man. Well, here's a question for you. Do you think? And I've argued that that all of these events, the I guess the bright side of all these events, in my opinion, right? And we talk about how there's a slow saturation effect that's happening in culture, I think, by seeing all of these failures so close together. Coming out of COVID, seeing the failures of the system to stop the spread of the pandemic, seeing this the, you know, the masks that don't do anything, seeing the failure of the vaccine, seeing the side effects of the vaccines, now seeing the inflation that's going on, seeing the war in the Ukraine that's never ending, and now this. Right. That to me is a white pill in that I think the everyday person, while they might their might their based instinct might be to say, yeah, more government regulate, at the same time, I have to think that people are getting the saturation effect of, hey, everything we're being told is supposed to safeguard us and protect us and do all these things that we've complied with has 
failed us miserably. And this is yeah. the latest example of that. Well, and, so what's and your take on that? And it's injured us. I mean, I think that's the important factor is like right. people are actually feeling this. This is not, you know, um, you know, the war on drugs where like minority communities were were ravaged, but like otherwise the majority of the country really didn't feel it directly. This is not the war in Iraq where like, unless you had a relative that was deployed and was unfortunately injured or killed, then you really didn't feel it. You know, like this, these are the type of, uh, you know, tyrannical things that everyone feels everyone. So I think that that is, you know, it's unfortunate that that's, that's human nature, but until they feel it personally, very few people are, are capable of waking up prior. And, and Mm -hmm. now, you know, they're feeling it personally. And, and now, you know, we have the potential of food shortages and and, and inflation or depression. You know, you have like more and more people are going to feel this more and more personally. And it's just going to come down to like, well, they know that they've been lied to by the current political establishment. Will they buy the lies of the incoming one? You know, and, and I feel like that's our duty as libertarians is to say, don't buy the lies. Know that yeah. anybody that's been in the political establishment that did not remedy all of the issues that we're facing today, if they are running again saying, this time I'm going to make it right, they're fucking lying to you. And yeah. you have to put new blood in there or you have to just completely opt out of the system, create you know, a, a parallel economy and, and work for yourself. And you know, it's just it's just not enough to look at the political class and think that they're going to remedy this. Like We really have to take control over our own lives. And I think that's a really key thing, right? When they talk about um, kind of what libertarians promise for the future, alternate economies, parallel economies is something that has to be key. And it's the reason why these people, like you said, might be doing the shot across the bow to anybody that's in the crypto space because they see that as, I mean, monetary control is absolutely the way in which the power structures stay into place. So at the end of the day, you can't yep. simply march in and, 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 you know, shut people down and overtake them and have a civil war to, to keep your, your country in power or keep your elites in power. Control the financial system is the easiest, most seamless way to do that, especially when you do have access over people's direct way to, to access to, you know, money. We it's saw the, that in it's Canada. It's the only way. It's <laughs> yeah. the only way to control the people, really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, controlling people's ability to buy food, send their kids, you know, get their kids medicine, all those other things. So you're seeing that distinctly. And I well, think that and, and to pay and to pay the fucking enforcement arms of the state. You know, if you don't exactly. if you don't have that capacity, if you can't, you know, print and borrow and, and keep the soldiers and the cops fed, well then your your whole regime is done. It's over. Yep. Yep, exactly, man. So that's where I think it's going to be interesting when we, if we can present a real economy that, that functions, right? And that's really the challenge I think right now with crypto is providing an economy. And we were getting there slowly, right? There were, you know, a lot of these banks actually were like signature bank was providing people with access to crypto to be able to ha- actually have transactional <laughs> transactions with, with the crypto marketplace, which is again, why they may have been shut down, but mm-hmm. <laughs> proof of concept there to the point where people can actually use it and see the vision of, Hey, we don't have to operate in this way. I think is very powerful if people can actually witness it. And oh, yeah. the question is when we're going to be getting to that point where the everyday person can experience it. And I just don't think we're there. I think we're probably still 10 years out easily from that point. Yeah. And the question is now whether or not we'll ever be allowed to get there or if they're going to regulate crypto out of existence, which they're already trying to do in conjunction with these central currencies. Yeah. I don't I don't think they can regulate it out of existence. They can drive it into the black market. I mean, yeah. but like you can't you can't suppress human demand for things that are illicit. You know, it does. It just doesn't go away like that. That's not how it worked with drugs. It won't work with the cryptocurrency right. space either. So, um, 
you know, it's going to force kind of an agorist worldview onto more and more people that have no idea that they're functioning in that fashion. And mm-hmm. um, that's okay. You know, if, if that's how people come to this, so many people have come to libertarianism or anarchism through the Bitcoin space. And I think yeah. that like, I don't care how you get here, you know, welcome. <laughs> I think it's, I, I mean, I th- it's probably better that way in truth to it have might it come be. through because, because trying to hit people over the head and you've experienced this, I've experienced this, trying to hit people over the head with a direct message so often just doesn't work because people are so hesitant to accept anything contrary to what they've been taught to believe and what they've been operating right. in and you're used to. So having this kind of subtle, like I said, a saturation effect of, yeah, you're coming around to view liberty to get, you know, I said, agorism, crypto, because you've been burned, because mm-hmm. you're finding that you have to do business this way. Otherwise, you, you know, you're exposing yourself to too much risk and you're losing too much value. It's a beautiful way to do it. And I think it's basically you're more of that coming. It's basically libertarianism by necessity. It's like, right. do you want to survive or not? <laughs> right. A- um, amen, so, dude. Yeah. And I, and, and I think, uh, you know, it's the last way to come to libertarian, libertarianism. Like you could have done it voluntarily <laughs> a lot sooner. Right. Um, but, you know, it's better that than like actually becoming, you know, a foot soldier for the regime, um, which some people are going to do that, too. I mean, we yeah. learned that during COVID. There's going to be a lot of your relatives that just go like. Well, the best paying job is to put you in a camp. So bye, Bob. You know, <laughs> it's like that's really what what the, uh, you know, uh, I hope they put me in the sex be. camp. That's oh, well, hey, if I'm crossed. in the same camp with you, it'll be a sex camp, brother. <laughs> All right. I get top. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> All right. Well, what else? Anything else you want to add on the topic? Otherwise, we'll we'll wrap up and you can tell people where to find you and we'll we'll head over to the bonus segment where you can talk about, um, you know, how you've insulated yourself or tried to insulate yourself financially and some some recommendations. Yeah. Sure. Uh, let me just give one silver lining note before we get out. Yeah. Uh, just that. I, I personally am of the opinion that we are not looking at the the ultimate you know depression or hyperinflationary period. I, I think that it's very probable that their little band-aids on bullet wounds that they're doing right now will kick the can for another year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would just encourage people, you know, even though you should be very cautious that that perhaps panicking in this moment is not to your benefit. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't want to get out of insolvent institutions. Of course you should. Uh, but I think that the vast majority of institutions will not be defunct. They will not go bankrupt over the next year, uh, over the next five years. Yeah, probably. But, uh, you know, over the next year, 18 months, I think that we have some time. So, you know, utilize that time. Do not allow the, the anxiety and the panic to, to seep in and, and make it so overwhelming that you basically go into a paralysis state. You need to stay active. You need to be learning. You need to be researching. You need to be speaking out. You need to be telling the truth to people that don't want to hear it. Um, you know, it's really now or never. So I'll, I'll end with that. Yeah. Awesome, man. All right. Well, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can support you and all of that good stuff. At Liberty Lockpot on Twitter, going to hit 75,000 by tonight, which is crazy. Oh, yeah. And then uh, Liberty Lockdown on YouTube. I, my my channel got nuked, and then I got it back, and my second strike will fall off on April 4th or 5th. So I'll start to be able to put stuff up over there again. So uh, subscribe to Liberty Lockdown on YouTube. I've also now diversified into the Rumble world because of my <laughs> uh, unceremonious ban from YouTube for three months. Uh, so you can find me there as well. And uh, any audio podcatcher, just Liberty Lockdown. Thanks so much for having me, man. It was great. Beautiful. Oh, it's great to have you on, man. It's the first time doing a solo show with you. I think you've been on some of the uh, the Roundup episodes, you know, with like Robbie and uh, yeah, all, those, that all those dumb, unfunny people. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, you know, it's Robbie's like, hilarious. like, 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 um, awesome, man. Robbie's well, guys, hilarious I'm, and four is mommy sexy as hell. I, I apologize. It's, it's a joke. It's true. She's got abs for days. Yeah. Uh, yeah, guys, I will be back for a, a segment about the Oscars. So yeah, thank you to Clint Russell for joining us. A little bit of lock pod. We're going to head over to the bonus segment and you guys will see some Oscar commentary from me right after the little break here. So Clint, talk to you soon, buddy. See you soon. All righty, we are back with uh, a little bit more of me, Sans Clint, and I want to talk a little bit about the Oscars because obviously I am in the space. I am working within the Los Angeles sphere here in uh, La La Land. I work with entertainment companies. I work with visual effects companies. I work with film companies. So it does behoove me to at least pay somewhat attention to the Oscars. And as a cultural commentator, I do want to give you guys a little analysis of what I saw, what went down at the latest ceremony. Now, I know a lot of you don't watch the Oscars. I know you're relying on me. Hold on, let me move my mic a little closer. I know you rely on me for, <laughs> for the breakdown of what's going on. And especially when you saw that Jimmy Kimmel was hosting, a lot of you may have tuned out. Jimmy Kimmel... Isn't as bad as Stephen Colbert, but he's right there with the late night hosts as being one of the worst leftist political operators, basically a parrot to the establishment when it comes to democratic policies that exist. I will go on record, though, and say that I have some respect for Jimmy Kimmel and that he is still friends with Adam Carolla. Now, Adam Carolla, of course, is on the right. He is a conservative libertarian. Uh, he is not shy about expressing his opinions on what's wrong with the city, what's wrong with the government, what's wrong with the world, and how much he despises a lot of what the left has done, especially the creation of the welfare state and, and things of that nature, the homeless industrial complex that exists, etc. Despite that fact, Jimmy and Adam are still very good friends, and Adam Carolla actually helps Jimmy Kimmel write a lot of jokes for specials like this. And from what I've heard, he has helped him write this latest, uh, or at least some of the jokes for the latest Oscars. So let's jump into it and see what I've got. I've got my notes. I will say Jimmy Kimmel, surprisingly was apolitical for the most part. Now, he did get into some political jokes a little later in the show. Not that they were any good, because political jokes are rarely ever good, especially when they're coming from people that are of Jimmy Kimmel's basic philosophical outlook. When you're coming from a place where the, I mean, empirically, the dominant cultural narrative is always that of the left, every mainstream media outlet, every comedian virtually, every late night show, every filmmaker, every celebrity, they all parrot the same nonsense, which means almost every joke that you can write that has a political bent to it is going to be predictable. You're going to see exactly what the joke is coming. You're going to see it foretold in the stars. This was no different. The most notable political joke he made, and this was not during the opening monologue, which he kept fairly apolitical, was about January 6th. It came in the guise of the editing award. And I'm not going to not going to pull the clip because, again, I don't feel like getting flagged for misuse by YouTube or whatever else. But to to sum it up, essentially said, oh, the editing award, we know how important editing is because, you know, a bunch of ugly people that stormed the Capitol on January 6th was edited to look like a, a peaceful rally. You know, it, that was accessory the crux of the joke. That's not it verbatim. Yawn, of course, the crowd you know, clapped like seals. Oh, they really got him there as, as if January 6th 
in its originality as portrayed in the kangaroo court trial that the Democrats in the January 6th committee put on wasn't on its own the most heavily edited piece of propaganda ever issued to the American population. A multi-night event that was literally produced by a television producer that the Democratic establishment had hired to put all the pieces together to sell their narrative. Yet Jimmy Kimmel goes on TV and says that somehow this latest Tucker Carlson releases, that's the real editing. I mean, the, the hypocrisy is so far beyond the pale here. And to issue this joke to this crowd with absolutely no self-awareness is mind-blowing. They literally hired a television producer to put this together in a in what was supposed to be a very serious court hearing. Uh, it's unbelievable. And you could say, well, Tucker Carlson had to produce it. Yes, he did. On the TV show that people know he has a bias on that we know is his political commentary, not something masquerading as, you know, as this completely legitimate, straight by the numbers, you know, trial. Just absurd. So. What did Kimmel talk about were some of the jokes? Well, as I said, he actually did some, have some decent monologue jokes and, and stayed away from politics for the most part. I think this was tactical in that they didn't want to lose most of their audience right off the bat, especially knowing that a lot of the films that were in this year's running for Best Picture, a.k.a. Maverick, even though Tom Hanks or sorry, Tom Cruise was not in attendance, supposedly because he didn't want to see Nicole Kidman. But Maverick. The biggest film, you know, the the savior of the box office, the uniter of Americans, a film that reminded you what filmmaking was supposed to be, what people go to the movies to see. That's what Maverick was. You can complain that it wasn't the finest movie ever. You can complain about whatever you want to complain about, but it brought people to the theater. It got people crying. It got people cheering. I've never been to a theater where at the end of it, so many people were so excited and just, you know, standing up applauding, but that was Maverick. And thus you had a lot of people tuning in to see if it would win and rooting for that. There was also a movie called Everything Everywhere All at Once. I loved this film. It was too long because Hollywood films have become way too self-indulgent. But it was a very good film. At the same time, and by the way, it won Best Picture. Michelle Yeoh won Best Actress. Um, what's his name? Uh, Ki Hui Kwan, who is the little kid in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, a.k.a. No Time for Love, Dr. Jones. Short round. He was actually grown up and was ready to quit acting. He gave the best speech of the night, by far. Very moving speech. Got me misty-eyed. Where he talked about how he was going to give up as a, an actor who had had his shot, who wasn't really getting much traction as an adult actor. His wife had said, you know, you're going to make it, you're going to do it. And he stuck with it. And here he is uh, getting an Oscar. It's very, very moving speech. Really loved it. Very touching. But he won it. Jamie Lee Curtis was in it. She won it. The film is a very interesting concept. And I want to talk about the studio that made it too. Then I'll circle back to Jimmy Kimmel, right? Because this film, as I said, I think draws in a lot of people that enjoyed it and on a level that wasn't that you're being preached to. It wasn't a moonlight. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a parasite where you're being taught a social, you know, social clue when you have to believe it. And that's why it got nominated. And we're going to make sure we did this and that. And we're checking the boxes, which is what was happening for so long with the Academy. It was just a very interesting film. And it was involving parallel dimensions. It could be a little bit hard to follow at times, but the heart of the film was there. And I don't want to spoil it for you because I want you to watch it. But as a father of two daughters, 
at the center of this was the relationship between a mother, her husband, and the daughter who was coming out. Yes, there's a little bit of, of signaling here because she was coming out as gay and was worried about how that would go with her very conservative Chinese father, yada, yada, yada. But it wasn't so oppressive as a central factor in the film that you felt like it was being shoved down your throat, which is how it's supposed to be. We can remind ourselves and remind filmmakers leading with the cause instead of leading with the story is the downfall of many production and why so many stories ring shallow and hollow in this era. This film didn't do that. It was very entertaining. It was very clever. It was very visually stimulating. It was funny. It was a great film. I encourage you all to see it. The studio that made it is called A24. Now, A24 has also made many other films. Uh, typically, they make a lot of horror films, a lot of kind of very strange films, but they're not afraid to make films that are outside of the norm. I believe they made the film The Green Knight, which I hated. It was a long, boring, self-indulgent slog by a director I don't enjoy. That being said, I like that they made it because they're taking chances. They're not just retreading the same old pap and trotting it out for us and saying, here, idiot, spoonful this shit into your mouth and we'll give you a little sugar to make it go down quite literally <laughs> in, in our Hollywood, uh, you know, in our, in our theater selection of candies and Twizzlers and whatever else it might be. I like they're taking risks and they're being rewarded with an Academy Award here. They, they've won several other awards. They've had more box office success than many of the major studios, despite the fact that they're an independent studio. This is encouraging for everyone because it hopefully is going to usher in another era like the 60s, like the 70s of people making films that are actually experimental, that are intriguing, that are willing to take on topics and are not these motherfucking stupid serial superhero movies. They're not these stupid, let's make another movie about slavery movies, another let's make a movie about women's rights movies, which I'm sorry, but yawn, my God, how many times can you make the same movie in a different rapper? And as I've said before, my complete belief is that they make these movies to keep us at each other's throats, to keep people being divisive and angry, because we've been doing this for 80, 100 years now, fighting this race and sex war and yada, yada. And I'm sorry, for all, all intents and purposes, we are an equal society. All right. There's no explicit uh, anti-woman sentiment out there. The gender pay gap is the biggest joke ever. People are talking about that today as I'm recording this on Tuesday. They're still banging this bullshit dumb of women only get paid 84 cents of the dollar. Nonsense. Nonsense. Not true. Not true on any level. Hasn't been true for 20 years. The original company that put out that information doesn't even report it anymore because there are too many variables in place that completely upend it. And women have had so much success catching up to men, even were it true in the past, that has been erased. It's been eradicated. I have zero concern about my daughters making money and competing with men in the marketplace. Absolutely none. No rational person who knows what they're talking about or has had any honesty to them believes in the gender pickup. But yet, we continuously are fed this line of bullshit. We're continuously fed films about race, about sex, to make sure that we never forget. It is the 9-11 moment for society and for the left and for government. Yes, government as well, because what does it lead to a divided society? And a divided society is good for the government. It's good for the elites. It's good to keep the existing power structures in place and keep you distracted and keep you pissed off. That's what it's for. I digress. 
let's get back to the Oscars. So it was good to see A24 with the risk they've taken getting paid off here. Now, Kimmel's speech, the, the monologue, I'll give you some funny things here. There was a very funny joke about Encino Man because apparently uh, Kihoi Kwan was in it along with uh, the other nominee, of course, for The Whale, Brandon Fraser, which is pretty funny. Funny observation. <laughs> These two, that Encino Man has inspired so many greats. That was pretty good. Uh, he had a funny joke. I think something just got delivered outside of my house, probably a shed I ordered. Uh, other thing that was pretty funny is making a joke about TV being able to do things that movies can't, uh, or I'm sorry, movies doing things that TV can't, namely movies being able to lose a hundred million dollars. Reference the, uh, the canceled Batwoman movie, which tested so terribly because it was nothing but woke garbage that they actually just killed it off. Just ended it. Take the loss. It is a pretty funny joke about uh, how Avatar cost $2 billion, which is enough money that uh, all of Nick Cannon's children could go to college or something along those lines. Pretty funny. He made fun of the seriousness of the actors in Hollywood and the uh, Stanislavski method, where the actor who was in Elvis apparently was gifted a typewriter by Tom Cruise, who wrote, and, and the Elvis actor wrote back to Tom Cruise using this old typewriter, which Elvis had used. In the character of Elvis, and then Tom Hanks wrote back, I'm sorry, Tom Hanks gave it to him, and then Tom Hanks wrote back to the guy in, in the Elvis guard as his character of, you know, Captain whatever the fuck his name was. And Jimmy Kimmel said, this really goes to show you how silly this all is. <laughs> Another funny line. And yes, actors take themselves way too seriously for what is essentially playing pretend. There was an interesting joke he made about Will Smith. I was glad that he addressed it and they didn't dance around it. I'm glad the Oscars allowed this to happen in that talking about Will Smith. He said, look, if any of you feel like you need to come up here and attack me, well, I've got several layers of protection. Uh, he's got Apollo Creed. And of course, he points to the guy who plays Apollo Creed. He's got the Mandalorian. He points to Pedro Pascal. He's got Spider-Man, which is Andrew Garofalo. It wasn't, it wasn't the new one, the good one. And he said, and I've got, you know, Spider-Man here and I've got Fableman here. And he shows Steven Spielberg. Funny joke. Appreciated it. So overall, kept it pretty apolitical. No, there was no real reference to COVID that I caught. There were no, no real references to climate that I caught. There was an interesting instance of Jessica Chastain being the only imbecile in the crowd to be wearing a mask. And hilariously, Kimmel made a joke at her expense and they cut to her and she had to frantically take the mask off because she's happy to virtue signal when it's her in a crowd standing out. And this is probably something her asshole publicist told her to do. Probably said, look, no one's going to be wearing a mask. You wear a mask and then you'll get some, you know, some, some attention because you're going to be the only one there in a mask. Who is this masked woman? Oh, it's Jessica Chastain, who, by the way, looks great. She's clearly a moron, but she looks great. So she frantically takes her mask off. And then the best part is she presented an award later. So I guess her mask really did a great job or would have done a great job of protecting her from COVID if we actually are to believe that they do anything, which we know now factually they do not from the biggest study undertaken by the most respected <laughs> study organization out there. It would have protected her fantastically right up until the point she took it off to give an award out. In the room full of the same people, all the same people that she's just been sitting in for hours on end. You can't make it up, folks. You can't write something stupider than that. Less sensical than that, other than maybe sitting down and taking your mask off to eat and then putting it back on to walk through the restaurant. You know, this is the height of stupidity. 
But what do you expect? She's an actress. A couple other quick notes. There was a funny little tweet I sent out, which you guys can go like and retweet, should you desire, where Eva Longoria had been up there giving an award. And if you don't know how Hollywood taping works, well, the chicks that wear these dresses showing off their uh, bodacious boobs, they're all taped up, right? You tape the dress to the titty and you tape under the titty to make sure the titty holds up because you're not wearing a bra. And of course, Eva Longoria is no spring chicken. She doesn't have breasts that can naturally stand up pert and proper like back in the old days. Not making a judgment, just stating a fact. Well, the tape must have gone off on one of her tits because as she's going up there to give the award, one of them one of them is down about six inches lower than the other one. <laughs> I, of course, had tweeted out that one of Eva's titties is Longoria than the other one. So there you go. Hilarious. And that's about it. I, um, I did notice a virtue signal from Kimmel. Uh, well, I can't even blame Kimmel from the awards ceremony because I had done an earlier episode about the nominations and I said that I was shocked that there were no nominations for two films. The Woman King, starring Viola Davis, who did the worst Michelle Obama impression uh, I've ever seen in my life. Hilariously terrible. And for Till, and I'm blanking on the name of the woman who was in Till. But uh, I think she's the same one that was in Nope in those movies. But maybe I'm wrong. Sorry, don't don't get offended, uh, any of my black listeners. I'm just trying to remember off the top of my head, and I, I just can't think of who it is. This is not a Sam L. Jackson's Lawrence Fishburne <laughs> confusion. But Till was, again, the story of a woman overcoming oppression because she's black. Till, let me look and see what Till's box office is at this time. Because it was something so stunningly low that, yeah, Till's total box office, $10.7 million. $10.7 million. It's a mother vowing to expose racism after her son was lynched, right? I'm very happy this movie failed. Not because I have anything against the story, particularly as it stands as a historical document, but because, like I said earlier, this they're just dredging stories up to keep people angry about racism and stop people from healing. That's all it is. We all know about racism. We know what happened. We've been taught this, as I said, 80, 100 years more. We know about it. We get it. It's part of the cultural zeitgeist. It's part of our culture. Every single person knows this. The only purpose in creating these films is to keep us angry, to keep black people angry at white people, and frankly, to make white people like me roll our eyes and go, can we just please move past this? Till, $10.7 million. It would have been an outrage to me had it been nominated, but I was sure it was going to because of the virtue signal, because of what it was, and because of the push to keep this in our cultural memory, keep it prominent, keep it at the forefront. So, no nominations for Till. That doesn't mean it didn't get a mention because Jimmy Kimmel goes up and he says, well, there's big, you know, there's notable films like Till and The Woman King. Now, The Woman King did a lot better in the box office. I didn't see it. I've heard it was actually a decent movie. Till I didn't see either. I'm never going to watch Till. Never. I'll probably watch The Woman King at some point. But still, because hashtag Oscar's so white, even though this time it's hashtag Oscar's so Asian, we can't simply let these films go away, right? As unpopular as Till was, uh, despite the fact no one wanted to see this damn movie, they still have to mention it. They still have to tip the cap because it wouldn't be Hollywood. It wouldn't be the narrative. It wouldn't be the culture of the left with it. So that did piss me off. Otherwise, 
I didn't really even notice any politicization in a lot of the speeches. Now, I did miss the documentary filmmaking category. That probably had something in there, right? But overall, people went up. They thanked their agents. They thanked the managers. They made a total touching story. Nobody did a grandstanding, obnoxious speech. Then again, Leonardo DiCaprio wasn't there. Tom Hanks wasn't there. George Clooney wasn't there. Uh, Johnny Depp wasn't there. Not that I expect Johnny to do that, but Johnny Depp wasn't there. Um, a lot of prominent, Brad Pitt wasn't there. A lot of prominent white celebrities, male white celebrities weren't there. Tom Cruise wasn't there, supposedly because of Nicole Kim. Um, a lot of the white celebrities weren't there either. Meryl Streep wasn't there. She loves to give stupid long-winded speeches. So they're your prime candidates for getting up there and grandstanding weren't there. Now, is this intentional or not? I don't know. It, was, it certainly was curious. I mean, none of them are nominated, but still, these are big, big stars. It's odd they weren't there. And uh, in their place, I mean, there wasn't really a lot of people to cut to in the audience that were really notable outside of the people that were nominated. And that was strange to see. That being said, this year's Oscars was 12% higher for viewership. I think a lot of that stems, like I talked about, from two of the films actually being mainstream popular, and the Academy might be learning its lesson a little bit. I think it's also the coming off of the Will Smith thing. People probably wanted to tune in to see what happens. Will Smith also not there, by the way. So we'll see. We'll see if the culture, we'll see if the industry has learned a lesson. We'll see if they pull back from their own D.I.E. nonsense. Now, I have seen still, as, as I am a screenwriter trying to get a movie made, I uh, still have seen so many calls for, quote unquote, diverse stories, quote unquote. Uh, you know, they, they still NBC still got its minority screenwriting program. And, it's you know, it's still if you're a straight white man, it's still going to be very difficult to get anything made or read, but I'm really hoping that goes back and that it's just based upon talent once again, because as I've said in the past, when you get into why quality of content has gone bad, despite the fact that we have so much more being made, uh, we still don't have a lot of shows that are really cutting through. It's still mostly trash and garbage and stuff that gets canceled after one season. You still have films coming out that nobody wants to see and you're confused as to how they're being made and why they're being made. I'm hoping that we're going to get back to this talent leading the way and not we're going to make 1% of films from a population of 10% of America. And somehow that's supposed to be the best of the best of the best. It's statistically ridiculous. And you're seeing that happen. And I'm hoping that it's finally getting pushed back. All right, guys, that's it for me on this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to please go and support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty. I have a bonus interview with Clint on that, on diversification. We'll find out where he's got his money placed, where I have my money placed, and where we think that people should be putting cash to insulate themselves and keep themselves safe from whatever happens in the very near future, possibly, in regards to our financial system. So please join there. You can also join at Locals, lionsofliberty.locals.com. You'll get uh, not only those bonus interviews, but of course, all of our bonus shows. You get discounts on merchandise. Depending on what level you join, you get free merchandise. And don't forget, we're going to be doing our calls at $15 level or up. We're, uh, we're going to have Robbie the Fire Bernstein on doing a Q&A with him. Fun little thing. You can ask him whatever you want. Get a chance to talk to some of the people that you look up to and enjoy listening to. And of course, we will be there as well. So, 
Thank you. Please support the show. If you're watching this on YouTube, please hit subscribe and notify. We're finally getting traction after they took off the strikes and finally got monetized after years on YouTube. So thank you guys. Please do that. Please subscribe to the podcast, share it. And don't forget, I did a special episode of Mean Age Daydream over on the solo channel of YouTube and the solo feed for Mean Age Daydream of the podcast on Michael Knowles and his statements about transgenderism and eradication. I'll give you my take on that. Go over there and listen. All right. Thanks, guys. From me, Brian McWilliams, from the Lions of Liberty Network, from Clint at Liberty Lockdown, and from Mean Age Daydream. Keep those electric eyes on me, babe. And keep that ray gun to my head.